Well, I want to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of John, the book of John, chapter 6, and we will be reading from verses 41 through 59. John, chapter 6, verses 41 through 59. This is one of the longer discourses of Jesus on He being the bread of life. This discourse comes a day after He had just finished feeding the 5,000, or shall I say the 20 plus thousand likely, including the women and children, all of those who were by the Sea of Galilee. After that event, that night, he walked on the water and the Jews met him on the other side. You remember, they came on the other side and last week we looked at them asking him in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? Rather than answering their question, he begins this discourse on he being the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father And mother, we know. How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for the reading of your word. We pray, Father, that once again you would illumine the eyes of our heart, 
Grant to us understanding. And help us, O God, that we might know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a young man who grew up as a Catholic, going to Catholic school, learning about God in general. But he had an accident as a teenager. He had an accident and he was blinded in one eye. That incident caused him to reject the notion that there is any good God and he became a hardened atheist. But God, God did not give up working in his heart. God did not give up and people did not either continuing to encourage him and pray for him. There was always a fear or anxiety in his life. He came to church here a number of months ago, left saying, too much Jesus. But still that emptiness, still that anxiety was there, unfulfilled by anything else. And then a few weeks ago, he sent me a note sent me an email and we got together right over there in the new church library. He shared with me about his life and his journey. And I shared with him about Jesus, the one and only Savior who could grant him forgiveness of sins if he would repent and turn. He would receive eternal life because Christ was raised from the dead. And I asked him if there was any reason why he would not want to receive the Lord Jesus as his Savior today. And he said, No, this is what I want. So I asked him some more questions so that he would be sure of the commitment he was making, and we bowed together. He prayed, confessed his sin, and acknowledged Christ who died for him and received Christ as his Savior. And we meet weekly now, studying together the fundamentals and the basics of the Christian faith. Why? Is it because of the influence of family or friends? Was it because of peer pressure that he became a Christian? Was it because of moving songs or a melody? Was it because of a sermon or an illustration? Was it because of some persuasive or articulate argumentation or apologetic? No. It wasn't because of any of that. I didn't hardly know him. It wasn't because of me. Why was it that he came to know Christ? It was because God opened the eyes of his heart so that he would receive the truth, the truth of the gospel. And he prepared the soil of his heart to receive the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were many people before me who tilled the soil, who sowed the seeds, who watered it. And it was God who caused the growth and gave it life in one's heart that one came to know Christ He was ready, waiting for someone to share with him and invite him to know the Savior. Today, there will be over 30 people going to La Push to share the gospel with the Kuyu tribe. They've been preparing. They've been praying. 
And as the Lord leads, they will share the gospel, the good news of the Savior's death and resurrection with those who are there. Every year it seems that someone comes to know the Lord Jesus as Savior. Not because of their slick curriculum, not because of the food, but because of the message of the gospel which is shared with them. Because God has prepared the soil of the heart of people, drawing them to himself. Because people, most of them will reject the message. Most of them will be, oh, polite perhaps, but they will reject the message of the gospel. Some will be antagonistic, but there will be some who will hear, some who will receive. Some of the children in this Native American community perhaps have one meal a day. The reason our team is going is not to feed them. There's not humanitarian. As important as food may be for those working in the kitchen, what is more important is, as Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The good news to these children, as well as the adults, is not, here is a free meal of lasagna and salad. Let's go and play ball, but... The good news and the purpose by which they go is to share that Jesus is the bread of life, that he will satisfy your greatest and deepest need. And that is the message of Christ here in this discourse. The expression where he says, I am the bread of life is the first of seven similar claims. The ego, the I am and the predicate. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate, he says. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And here Jesus likens himself to physical things so that we might be able to understand spiritual concepts. But the Jews here simply did not understand. Why? Not because they lacked intelligence. They were smart. But because of the hardness of their heart due to unbelief. And this section of text is a continuation of Jesus' discourse on himself being the bread of life. The one who will fulfill the deepest needs of all people. But it is also the beginning also the beginning as we see here in this text. The response of the crowd The scowling response to Jesus' claim. Their grumbling is rebuked by Christ and he reiterates to them that he is the bread of life. So we see, first of all, the Jews, the rejection of Jesus in verse 41 to 42. This is the rejection of his previous discourse. The Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven. And the reference to the Jews, by the way, is often in the book of John, one that carries a negative connotation. Whenever you see that in the book of John, you read the Jews. It's more often than not a reference to something that wasn't positive, to the antagonists to who Jesus was. And the Bible says that they were grumbling because they did not recognize him as the son of God, as God himself, despite the fact that many of these Jews, if not most had seen and experienced Jesus heal scores of people, if not hundreds of people. 
They were perhaps among the 20,000 that they were fed. Despite that happening the day before, they asked Jesus again. You remember last week, they asked Jesus, what sign will you give us? What sign are you going to give us that shows you are the Messiah? Here is, here is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth from that little despised town. What sign are you going to give us? Jesus had already experienced opposition from the Jewish leaders. Remember when he performed the miracle of healing the lame man by the pool of Bethesda and the Jewish leaders sought to kill him. Why? Not because he healed the lame man, but because he did it on the Sabbath. At every turn, the Jews dogged him and the masses began here in this text to scowl at his claim. John chapter 12, verse 37 to 40 says, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah again said, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Despite the predicament that they were in danger and despite the predicament that many are in danger even today, of the future of their very own souls, their love for whatever it may be is greater than the love that they might have for a Savior. You find that happening sometimes. Maybe there's a husband or a wife that passes away. And despite the attempts to share the good news of Christ with the living spouse, they want nothing to do with that. Why? Because they love their spouse so much, they're willing to go wherever their spouse is, even if that means away from God and hell. You'll find that people refuse to evacuate their homes, even when there is a hurricane raging towards it. You'll find that people don't want to leave. On August 30th, 2005, there was an account of a Coast Guard Lieutenant, Ian McConnell. He was ordered to fly his H-46 helicopter to New Orleans back and forth and to keep that machine flying so that he could rescue people. None of his crew were prepared for what they were about to see because they were ahead of every news crew. And on their first three missions, some 89 people were airlifted out. Three dogs, two cats. But on their fourth mission, despite 12 different flights to New Orleans, he and his crew were unable to save anyone. None. Why? Because all the people there, they refused to board the helicopter. Instead, they told him to bring them food and water even though they were warned that this was very dangerous and the waters were not going to go away. It's sad to say, many of those people died because they refused to be rescued. Some people will not leave what they love. Their homes 
their homes. They refuse to leave, even though there may be a towering inferno of a forest fire and they try to defend it with a garden hose. The Jews, just like these people today, refused to be rescued from their sin despite the many warnings that the Scriptures lay out for them. Despite the love of those who care, who can see from the outside the predicament that is happening. They are like these Jews who scowled at Jesus. Is this not Jesus, verse 42, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Jesus rebuked the crowd, verse 43. Don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In his rebuke of their unbelief, Jesus underscores the fact that no one can come to Christ unless God the Father draws them. Why? Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul lays this out to the Corinthian church regarding the light of the gospel, saying that they have this ministry, they've received this ministry of mercy. <coughs> Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. And even, he says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case, whom? The God of this world has blinded. The minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not understand and they will not receive Christ as Savior. And unless God intervenes and supernaturally causes them to see, drawing people to himself, they cannot know him. This idea is completely different than those who would advocate what is known as prevenient grace. Prevenient grace, as Millard Erickson in his book, Christian Theology, explains, quote, As generally understood, prevenient grace is grace that is given by God to all men indiscriminately. It is seen in God sending the sunshine and the rain upon all. It is also the basis of all the good found in men everywhere. Beyond that, it is universally given to counteract the effect of sin. Since God has given this grace to all, everyone is capable of accepting the offer of salvation. Consequently, there is no need for any spiritual application of God's grace to particular individuals. In other words, some, including those who would ascribe to Catholic theology, Wesleyan traditions, Nazarene and Methodists, have some type of belief in what is known as prevenient grace, where they believe that God gives everyone enough grace so that they can choose Christ on their own without any special intervention of God, to believe in God. This would be an Arminian view. The Bible, we believe, though, calls grace, this general type of grace, common grace, where God gives the rain and the sunshine to all, that grace, this common grace, is given to all and affects all, 
but not grace enough by which anyone and everyone can simply choose Christ in and of themselves. No, God draws sinners to himself. How do we know? In this particular passage, look at verse 44. No one, no one, it says, can come to me. No one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent me draws him. In addition, if you look back at verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. These two passages make it clear that it is God's direct drawing of the sinner to himself. Giving someone to Christ is fully the work of God. There is no salvation, no relationship to God the Father unless God supernaturally intervenes and draws someone to himself. For the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4 has blinded the mind of those who do not believe. John MacArthur writes, but the Bible indicates that fallen man is unable of his own volition to come to Jesus Christ. Unregenerate people are dead to sin, Ephesians 2. Slaves to unrighteousness, John 8. Alienated from God, Colossians 1. And hostile to him, Romans 5. They are spiritually blind, 2 Corinthians 4. Captive, 2 Corinthians 2. Trapped in Satan's kingdom, Colossians 1. Powerless to change their sinful natures, Romans 5. Unable to please God and incapable of understanding spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2. Although the human will is involved in coming to Christ, since no one is saved apart from believing the gospel, sinners cannot come to him of their own free will. God enables people to be able to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, salvation is wholly the work of God, even the work of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to exercise belief in Christ. This, too, is the work of God. And therefore, God receives all the glory in salvation. No one can pat themselves on the back and say, oh, I made such a smart choice. Because even that choice is a God-enabled choice. Verse 45, it says, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. A reiteration and further support of verse 44. Do you realize then that salvation being God's complete work places the responsibility of saving people in the hand of God? The work of saving people belongs to God. When I was in college, I remember asking a campus crusade worker, I wanted to know how to do on-campus evangelism. I wanted to know how to approach and talk to people in cold turkey evangelism and just go up to someone. And so he took me along with him and he taught me how to do that. And we went and I remember us coming to, to a student who was sitting there and we began talking with him about Christ. And we began to have an avenue of discussion and later on we shared the gospel and then we asked him if you if he wanted to receive Christ and he said yes and i was so excited 
I was so excited. He said that he wanted to receive Christ as a savior. But rather than leading him in a prayer of salvation, the crusade counselor began to ask him all sorts of questions as to why he wanted to receive Christ. And I thought to myself, what are you doing? You know, he just said he wants to receive Christ here. Sign on the dotted line, brother, and you'll get in. As it turned out, the young man simply wanted to add Jesus to the plethora of other things he believed. To add Jesus as a component to his life and realizing that Jesus is not just some addition to the other things. He decided, no, that's not what I want. And I remember being so frustrated because I thought that salvation was sort of a formulaic prayer. If you can just get them to pray and say these words, he'll make it. I was so wrong. I was so wrong and I was so frustrated. But I realized, you know what? The gospel message was shared. The responsibility of opening one's heart is not up to me. It is up to God who draws people to himself. And it is because of faithfulness that God calls us to. Faithfulness in sharing our faith carefully, completely, truthfully, fully. There's no need to manipulate or dumb down the message of the gospel. But simply present the truth of the gospel, which is Jesus died for your sins. He came as a substitute so that you would not have a separate life from God and be destined to hell. He paid for that sin on the cross. And if you repent and turn from your sin by the grace of God, God will grant to you eternal life. Jesus reiterates that message, but he reiterates it in verse 47 in a figurative way. He says once again, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. As I mentioned last week, the Jewish conception of the Messiah was this, that he would provide for them physical food, you see, similar to what their ancestors, the Israelites, when they wandered the desert for 40 years, manna came down from heaven. They would find it on the ground every day. They would gather up that manna. And their idea of a Messiah is that their Messiah would feed them as well. They would feed them. And Jesus, here he says, look, that manna they ate in the wilderness, they ate it. But look, all of those people died. I'm the living bread, verse 51. I'm the living bread, he says, that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Well, they still didn't get it. Verse 52, they argued with them. said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Like the woman at the well I shared with you last week in John chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And she says, when he says, oh, I'll give you water, you won't thirst anymore. And she says, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. These Jews were hardened in their hearts. They were seeking a sign. But Jesus showed them many, many signs and still they did not believe. Still stuck in their materialistic, naturalistic world. They understood not his figure of speech. It must have frustrated their sensibilities. 
In their pride of their own mind, they could not grasp the spiritual significance. Jesus continues on with the figurative consummation of Christ when he says to them, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in yourselves. He began continuing to speak in metaphors, in reference to what it means to appropriate, to embrace, to accept Christ. Everything that Christ is, we were to embrace. He's not speaking of some type of cannibalism, but using a figurative metonym, type of figure of speech, of what it means to Embrace everything that Christ is. Now, the Catholic Church will look at this particular passage and they will use it to substantiate their doctrine of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Which is the belief that the communion elements, the juice and the cracker that we will take later this morning... In their theology, they believe it literally transforms into the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as you consume it. That as you consume it, you will be consuming the actual flesh and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Mass. Catholic theologian Ludwig Ott writes in the Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, quote, The body and the blood of Christ together with his soul and his divinity and therefore the whole Christ are truly present in the Eucharist. Another reason why, of course, is not reference to communion because the Lord's table hadn't even been instituted as of yet. And the Jews, they wouldn't have understood what he meant if it had been a reference to that. But second, Jesus would be saying, if it was something in reference to that, that he who partakes in the flesh and and the blood of him physically would have eternal life would mean that eternal life would come through consuming the elements in communion, both of which are not true. But the Jews, as well as Catholics, fail to understand that these are figures of speech indicating that one who comes to Christ and embraces Jesus, receives eternal life, and without Him there is no hope. That philosophy of modernism which led to this nihilistic hopelessness, without Christ there are those who have no hope. In a purely naturalistic worldview, there is no hope. There is no hope because there is no purpose to one's life, no long goal of life. Only short-term thrills that come that people chase after to fill the void of emptiness in the heart. Christian apologist William Lane Craig explains, quote, Who am I? Man asks. Why am I here? Where am I going? Since the Enlightenment, when he threw off the shackles of religion, man has tried to answer these questions without reference to God. But the answers that came back were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. Quote, you are accidental byproducts of nature, he is told. A result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death, unquote. Modern man thought that when he got rid of God, he had freed himself from all that repressed and stifled him. 
Instead, he discovered that in killing God, he also killed himself. For if there is no God, then man's life becomes absurd. Apart from God, mankind is doomed, is a doomed race in a dying universe. Because the human race will eventually cease to exist, it makes no ultimate difference whether it ever did exist. Mankind is thus no more significant than a swarm of mosquitoes or a barnyard of pigs. For their end is all the same. The same blind cosmic process that coughed them up in the first place will eventually swallow them again, unquote. Without God, there is no meaning or purpose in life other than temporal satisfactions which do not satisfy the soul. Augustine cried out to the Lord, You made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Unquote. Even centuries before that, Solomon Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes here in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And all of his pursuits, his pursuits for pleasure, his pursuits for construction and productivity, his pursuits for possessions and his pursuits for power, political power, and even the pursuit of wisdom. He came to the end of that and he realized that all was meaningless for only in God could come true purpose. Only in God could true, come true life. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. The crux of the message is that only Jesus satisfies the soul. Solomon had mentioned in verse 25, who can eat, who can have enjoyment without him? Of that chapter 2. No one can. Only Jesus fills the empty heart. Only Jesus embraces one and will give eternal life. Only Jesus offers forgiveness of sin, alleviation from guilt, and true and lasting satisfaction. So let me ask you a simple question. Are you fulfilled? Is your life filled with joy because you know Christ? Regardless of your life circumstances, are you fulfilled? Are you chasing after the dreams, the things that Solomon pursued, pleasure, or career, accomplishments and possession, power, even wisdom? Nothing fills the heart like Christ. Nothing fills the life and the deepest needs of a person than Christ. And Christ offers himself as the bread of life, the living bread of life who can satisfy the soul. For when God draws a person to himself, Christ enters into their life through the exercise of faith that is animated by the Holy Spirit. God saves for His glory, so that all glory might go to Him. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that, Father, in the void of our own lives, you have given your Son to fill. As the bread of life, O oh God, He gives us 
eternal life to all who would repent. Father, you know each and every heart that is here. And I pray, O God, as you look into each heart, that, God, you would draw those whom you desire to know you. And that they, Father, would place their faith and their trust in you and what your Son has done so that they might be saved. We give you thanks, O God, for this gracious gift the gift of your Son and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.